0: Welcome to this episode of the Australian Naval History Podcast series, where we examine important events in the Royal Australian Navy's history. Hello, I'm Professor Rob McLaughlin from the University of New South Wales in Canberra at the Australian Defence Force Academy. This is the final of four episodes dealing with the Royal Australian Navy in the Middle East since 1990. In the last episode of Australian Naval History Podcast, an expert panel discussed the RAN's involvement in 12 years of sanctions enforcement. In this episode, a new panel will discuss the RAN's involvement in the multinational maritime interception force during the 2003 Iraq War. The exploits of the RAN clearance diving team in a conflict have been previously covered in the clearance diving in the RAN from Vietnam to 2019, which was released last year. However, to discuss the Iraq War 2003 and the Royal Australian Navy's involvement, I am joined by Dr David Stevens from the Australian War Memorial. He is an author on the official history project writing up Australian operations in Iraq, Afghanistan and East Timor. He's a member of the Naval Studies Group and during his former Naval career, David was on the RAN Task Group Commander Staff in the first Gulf War and was the RAN Task Group Naval Historian during the 2003 Iraq War. We're also joined by Vice Admiral Peter Jones. He's also of the Naval Studies Group and he has previously deployed to the Red Sea and the Gulf and then he was appointed as the RAN Task Group Commander, Maritime Interception Force Commander in November 2002. So Peter was the Coalition Maritime Interception Operation Screen Commander during the 2003 Iraq War. It's also a great pleasure to welcome Captain David McCourt, who was the commanding officer of the Maritime Interception Force Command ship, the amphibious ship HMAS Kanimbla, during the Iraq War. David had previously taken Kanimbla up to the Gulf in 2001-2002. And finally, we're also joined by Captain John Stavridis, who was the operations officer in the frigate HMAS Anzac during the 2003 Iraq War. Later in his career, he commanded the frigate Arunta and then his old ship Anzac before commissioning the destroyer HMAS Hobart. In all, John had three deployments to the Gulf. Thank you all for joining me. First off, David Stevens. In the last episode, we left the Maritime Interception Force planning for war as US President Bush's deadline fast approached. What nations had agreed to take part in the military action and what what was the overall military plan?
1: Well Rob, um, although uh, President Bush at the time claimed that more than 30 countries were part of the, what was termed the, the coalition of the willing, only three nations initially provided military forces. And of course that was the United Kingdom, Australia and Poland. Now, the Australian contribution included the three warships we talked about before, Anzac, Darwin, and Kanimbla. But other elements of the ADF contribution were a clearance diving team, a special operations task group, Chinook helicopters, uh, 14 FAA in Hornets, two P3C Orions, and of course, a number of C 130 Hercules transports. Now, the overall military plan to remove Iraqi President Saddam Hussein from power. That was the responsibility of General Tommy Franks, the commander of U.S. Central Command. Now, that plan underwent many changes in the weeks and months before the invasion actually began in March 2003. But the plan essentially involved a a rapid ground advance from Kuwait using both uh, Royal Marine and U.S. Marine and uh, heavy armoured forces and a strategic air campaign that some hoped would actually deliver the knockout blow. Now, in parallel, there was the maritime campaign in the south, which is what really we're talking about today, and that was needed to open up the key Iraqi port of Umm Qasr and allow the rapid flow of humanitarian aid. And this was particularly important because the leadership of the United States and the United Kingdom all wanted to demonstrate that they had no quarrel with the Iraqi people, but only with Saddam Hussein's regime. And, of course, as we'll hear today, this campaign involved a lot of moving parts, including the seizure of the key oil nodes on the Alpha Peninsula to prevent their sabotage, an amphibious landing by the Royal Marines to clear the Alphor Peninsula, and an advance to Basra, and the clearance of the adjacent Abdullah waterway to make it safe for coalition shipping.
2: Peter Jones, you commanded the coalition ships in the northernmost part of the Gulf. First up, can you tell us What ships did you have with you there?
3: Well, in the normal uh, sanction enforcement days, we would typically have uh, six ships, and they could have ranged from cruiser to destroyers and frigates, and they were drawn from the US, the Australian, and the British Royal Navy, um, and uh, occasionally the the, the Polish uh, support ship Janicki. Um, From early 2003, with the possibility of uh, war growing, this force increased uh, significantly. And just to give you a bit of context, um, in the Gulf, normally, there'd be about 50 warships uh, up and down the Gulf, uh, and that grew to 150. In the Maritime Interception Force, uh, uh, as David indicated, we, Australia had ANZAC and Darwin on rotation, then joined by Knimbler. Um The one Royal Navy ship was uh, increased to three um, there were two or three U.S. destroyers and frigates, and uh, as well as the Chiniki. the, the U.S. also introduced into theater um, two patrol boats, uh, uh, the Firebolt and Chinook, and four U.S. Coast Guard patrol boats. Um, when Kanimbla arrived um, in theater, um, my staff and I moved across to her from the U.S. destroyer Milius uh, because Kanimbla. Um, as we'll sort of hear, I guess, is uh, she was very well suited to this role as uh, the Maritime Interception Force command ship. Um, My staff also was augmented um, by a Royal Navy contingent. I also received a Kuwait Navy liaison officer and I uh, positioned liaison officers from the Maritime Interception Force into a number of adjacent and superior commands.
0: Just continuing, Peter, with this um, force that you had there, what was the role of the Maritime Interception Force going to be in this planned operation?
3: Well, as David indicated, our focus was to uh, be part of the Corps of Dalla Waterway Clearance Operation. The the planning for this had been done um, by Commander Desron 50 that uh, uh, listeners would have heard mentioned in the last episode the current the incumbent at the time was uh Commodore john peterson and he and his staff were working on the the overall plan for the number of different operations which would take place in the northern arabian gulf and we helped where we could in providing um, information for that planning and what fell out for us was really seven tasks the first was to inspect um and escort all dows and, um, and merchant ships, which had been uh, hitherto used for smuggling. So they were up the core of Dalla Waterway. Um, when they came out, they had to be inspected, made sure they had no uh, mines or anything that was going to disrupt the coalition shipping, and then uh, ensure that they were escorted down uh, what we called Red Route 1 down um, the, to the south and away from the uh, where the uh, war would be conducted. Um, in that operation, as we heard in the previous episode, that actually occurred before the war started, um, and, uh, and Darwin was the initial on-scene commander. The second uh, task we had to do was to support the SEALs and the GROM, uh, the, the Polish GROM, the Special Forces, where they were going to be inserted into the two offshore oil installations to prevent um, any release of oil into the Gulf. And ANZAC was assigned to uh, provide that uh, close support. Um, the third thing we had to do was really to prevent any Iraqi naval units from exiting the Korabdallah waterway and the Shat al Arab, the neighbouring waterway, um, t- coming into the Gulf and interfering with coalition operations. Um, and in particular, the, um, the the chief of the Kuwaiti Navy, Major General Ahmed al Mullah, he um, he really emphasised to us that uh, in this area the the Iraqis were particularly adept at mining and so that was a a particular area we had to be um, um, able to counter. Um, The fourth thing was really to support that our four Royal Marine uh, insertion that uh, David mentioned um, and that would take the form of um, four of our frigates, uh, including ANZAC, the uh, three British uh, frigates Chatham, Marlborough, and Richmond conducting shore bombardment. And the um, commanding officer of Marlborough, Captain Mark Anderson, he took the lead for that part of the plan. Um, then uh, the fifth part was really to protect the mine countermeasures vessels, which were clearing the the waterway up to that uh, port of Umcasar. Then um, we would then have to escort the humanitarian aid shipping and finally, um, to conduct, on an ongoing basis, riverine patrols of the Korab Delaware waterway to really ensure that that, um, uh, that waterway was um, uh, not interfered with once the, the traffic uh, occurred. Um, it's probably worth uh, mentioning just at this point, that we were not the only other, uh, we were not the only task group in the Northern Arabian Gulf that there uh, was a the defense of Kuwait. Task Group, which was a Bahraini, Emirati, and Kuwaiti Task Group operating to the west of us. Um, and uh, also there was a, a US Coast Guard were just off the uh, uh, Iranian coast. Um, there was a UK Amphibious Task Group to the south of us. And then further south was um, uh, a, a large number of the US uh, ships. Um, and uh, just to the south of us also was uh, Uh, Commander John Peterson, who had been designated the North Arabian Gulf Commander, and he was in the cruise of Valley Forge. And amongst other things, he was really coordinating and making sure that all these various operations were synchronised.
2: John Stavridis, Anzac and Darwin had been in the Gulf since
0: November 2002. They'd be doing boardings and sanctions enforcement, but Peter's just listed a whole range of tasks, that were not sanctions enforcement. So how did the ships prepare for these potential combat operations?
4: That, that's correct. So we had uh, uh, entered the area in late 2002, and indeed from a previous uh, podcast, uh, we continued the uh, MEO operations, which uh, having been there uh, um, uh, in the months previous, we were quite, quite uh, uh, prepared to do. But it became evident uh, towards the end of the year that things were changing. Uh, And then, uh, led by our our CO and our gunnery officer, uh, we started making preparations on what it could look like a whole bunch of uh, planning on what may happen next, including the possibility of providing naval gunfire support. And we spent a long time briefing internally and externally on what may and may not happen. So we were using our own internal uh, planning uh, processes. And indeed, Uh, as I said, briefing and preparing the crew on uh, what type of uh, um, conditions we may face. And then we started the internal training ourselves, should that actually eventuate. So um, whilst our workup to uh, prepare us for the Middle East operation was for a very different focus, we had enough time to certainly train ourselves and uh, also uh, obtain the resources we need to affect that mission. So David McCourt,
0: let's bring you in. You and Canimbla arrived in the Gulf in, uh, in early February. What was your initial task and what was it about Canimbla that made her so suitable to act as the, uh, as the multinational interception force command ship?
5: Thanks, Rob. So when, when we arrived, our uh, initial task was really very similar to what we'd undertaken in uh, 2001, 2002 in our first deployment, and that was actually participating in the MIF multi-international multi force boarding operations up in the Northern Arabian Gulf. So we were well-versed in that role. We had uh, our boarding parties had uh, done the preparation for that on it during our workup back in Australia. And then once we'd arrived in theatre, we'd gone into Bahrain, done a bit more uh, training uh, in Bahrain with the Coast Guard, uh, Lidet, who, um, who were the, uh, I guess, the boarding experts for the Gulf. Uh, but all the while we knew that really that was just uh an operation that we'd be undertaking until the um the invasion kicked off um so th- i guess the reason that commander was well suited to undertaking the role of a command ship was it had actually been set up to do that very thing we had a a very capable uh, communications outfit with um you know all sorts of uh, wide band communications we had uh, a fully operational um headquarters Uh, uh, I guess, a headquarters space that had all the connectivity, all the computers, all the stuff that you would need to stand up a headquarters uh, at very short notice. And and we'd also trained in that role uh, in some exercises before we'd gone to the golf. So we were very, again, we were very well versed in how that would all work. I mean, there were lots of things that we didn't know uh, and we sort of had to roll with those as the planning unfolded. But in essence, the ship was well set up to be a command platform. We'd actually undertaken that role for a brief period of time in the two thousand and one, two thousand and two deployment, and and so we were. We were. I said, well, well prepared for that. Uh, And when Captain Jones and his team arrived on board, they pretty much uh, rolled straight into that.
0: Well, John Stavridis, back to you for a moment. You'd been up in the Gulf with ANZAC since late two thousand and two, but as the war was approaching you would undoubtedly have been aware that there was a lot of discussion and even protests about the possibility of war back in australia what was the mood like in anzac
4: the mood was actually quite quite strong um, there, there were some difficult conditions at the time uh, including um, preparing the crew for uh, anthrax and that that was a bit of a negative um, uh, response by, by some of the crew which ended up uh, resulting in their return um, home because they couldn't meet the conditions of, of service but apart from that most people were quite focused. As I said earlier, we spent a lot of time briefing uh, the crew on not only the conduct of what may happen, but also the reasons for what uh, uh, w- would be happening. A- again, at this stage, we are only speculating, we weren't actually sure, but our mission statement was actually quite clear. And I remember uh, spending uh, uh, many hours briefing the uh, crew, both internally and also externally, uh, up and out on uh, what, what we could do. So I'm pretty proud that our crew actually understood their mission and, uh, and why we were there. David McCord,
0: I might just jump to you as well. How was it for your crew? I mean, you had left when this was all starting to look very likely. How did your crew feel about this? What was the mood in in Canimbla?
5: I think the mood in Canimbla was, uh, was pretty good all, all the way through. There was no doubt in, uh, in the minds of the crew uh, during our workup and subsequent passage to the gulf that, that we would be actually going to war that was that was made well clear and, and everyone was was fully uh i guess fully on board with that so i think that i think our motivation and morale was high and i think um because also that i mean we were on a we were starting out on that deployment we hadn't been in the gulf for a prolonged period of time like the other ships so um i guess generally speaking uh the crew was quite excited about the prospect of actually putting into practice all the stuff that we're trying to do. That said, however, and as John just highlighted, the uh, the whole anthrax vaccination um, program was a, was a bit of a debacle in the way it was rolled out. Uh, it wasn't well thought through, and um, and so as uh, as we were proceeding to the Gulf, we had a number of sailors who um, basically uh, refused to have the vaccination, and the um, the impact of that was. That those people who refused to have the vaccination couldn't actually deploy into the area of operations. Initially, when, um, when we were told that we were going to, uh, uh, I guess, um, told we were going to implement this vaccination program, we had about 25 sailors who said that they were unwilling. Fortunately, the, the doctor on board um, was a very engaging chap, Doug McKenzie, and he went around and spoke individually to all of the, uh, all of those people who weren't, weren't uh, happy about the vaccination, explained the, the physiology of it all and how it all worked. And uh, by the time we'd, uh, we'd finished with that, that sort of program of education, if you like, uh, we only had seven sailors who were unwilling to take the vaccination. And so they, uh, they left the ship in, um, as we went past Christmas Island. And once that was over and done with, and that was really just a, a distraction, if you like, for a couple of days, uh, once that was dealt with, we proceeded to the Gulf, continuing to prepare ourselves for what would inevitably be combat operations. And as I said, I'm, I'm pretty uh, like John. I was quite proud of the fact that our sailors were fully engaged and uh, and highly motivated for that task.
2: Well, Peter Jones, looking
0: outwards for a moment, what was the mood like in in a multinational sense? You're the commander of the Maritime Interception Force. What was the perspective of your teams and your different units on this approach to war?
3: So as I move between ships and navies, the level of discussion about uh, the possibility of war varied dramatically. Some ships, there was very little discussion. Others, there was uh, a lot more. Um, And um, I would offer just a couple of observations. Um, First off, I think most people generally believe that the Iraqis had chemical weapons. And we were not alone in this. Um, the Marit- Maritime Interception Force talked to local mariners um, regularly, uh, and from them we um, we learnt that uh, quite a, a number of people in Basra were putting plastic on their um, windows because they were concerned that Chemical Alley would uh, would use chemical weapons uh, on Basra and 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 southern Iraq generally. Um, I think the other thing is, unlike other coalition forces, the maritime interception force saw the Iraqi forces every couple of days, as one of the the PB90 patrol boats would pass through our area. Um, and indeed, when when they did, we we would try by our movements to in, intimidate them and and keep them from um, straying too far into the Gulf. Um, and and we knew from the same merchant mariners that uh, w- that tactic was um, was quite effective. The, the point being that uh, we were very focused on the mission. We saw the perspective um, enemy uh, regularly, um, and also the the same local mariners alerted us to um, the Iraqi's plans to lay mines, destroy the those offshore terminals, and also destroy some of the and um, navigation. Um, uh, markers that were um, along the Coral Gala waterway.
2: David McCourt, Kanimbla. pretty soon after she arrived in the
0: area of operations, embarked 130 coalition boarding personnel to bolster the uh, the MIF. How did you go about integrating them into the ship? Well,
5: um, we were very fortunate that we'd been, as I said previously, we'd been up in the Gulf in 2001, 2002, so we were well-versed well versed in how to undertake boarding operations. But the challenge for us was to embark, uh, you know, that volume of people and their ribs. The people were not a problem. We were a large ship. We had lots of accommodation spaces. We had lots of places where people could, could kit up and so on. But what we didn't have was a, a whole bunch of um, cradles for to put boats into, and, you know. and to. So what we had to do was work out... How we were going to launch and recover a bunch of uh, of ribs from both U.S. Navy and uh, and British uh, ships. So we had Royal Marines from the Brits, uh, some sailors from the British Navy, and uh, a bunch of uh, U.S. Navy uh, sailors and their ribs. So in the so what what we did was through that problem to the professionals, to the bosun's mates, and the uh, ship's army department, and between them, they came up with a way that we could uh, launch and recover boats. Uh, from the, the forecastle of the ship using the ship's uh, 80-tonne crane, and uh, they came up with a way of um, – they made, I guess, uh, a bunch of uh, jerry-built um, – jerry-built's probably a little bit harsh, but they came up with some um, fairly rudimentary um, boat cradles that they made using uh, pallets and um, and pneumatic fenders, and they worked really, really well. And so, uh, as a consequence of uh, you know, of, of I said, that previous experience where in the Gulf in 2001 one two when we'd had US Navy SEALs uh, operating off the ship and operating off that foredeck, we were able to very quickly work out how we would uh, operate those um, those ribs uh, from the coalition forces similarly. We also um, established a separate um, organisation within the ship called the Boarding Department. Uh, our Training Officer, Lieutenant Commander Tony Mullen, uh, had been, um, a boarding officer in the previous deployment so we basically uh, made him a head of department and gave him the responsibility for the coordination and administration of all those um, those coalition sailors and our own boarding parties and so basically tony worked with our ops officer and they worked out the way that we would rotate um the various uh boarding parties so that we had you know the coverage that we needed to conduct the operations that we needed to undertake we also had um we had places where they could uh where they could store their kit where they could get dressed and undressed you know on the way to and from uh patrolling and so on we had they had briefing areas that were specific to their requirements and so because it was a big ship because we had uh we had the space and we had the uh, the capacity and that and that as i said that previous experience it was actually you know reasonably easy to integrate them into the ship's company and into the way we operated
2: Peter Jones in the approaching impending combat operations. Uh,
0: a serious risk, of course, is blue on blue where coalition forces misidentify each other and, and, uh, and attack each other. What sort of measures did you have to put in place to mitigate this risk, especially for the boarding teams and the, and, the, and the small boats? First
3: off, it's important to emphasize that the North Arabian Gulf is a very confined area. And at that time of year, visibility can deteriorate quickly when the uh, winter shamal comes comes up, the shamal is a can be a, a quite a strong northwesterly wind that blows dust um, through the, uh, the the affected area of the Gulf, um, and it can get quite cold, and uh, and uh, boarding parties can uh, can even suffer from high th- hypothermia. So while the long-standing maritime interception forces ships were quite well acclimatised to this quite confined area, Uh, new ships were not. And so one of the the areas, as uh, as indicated Rob, was this concern about um, uh, own forces shooting uh, at one another because of the poor visibility and confined area. So in particular, we were concerned about our boats, who would have up to 18 personnel on board. And so it was vital to sort out a uh, means to ensure that the, um, there was not uh, blue on blue engagements. And so a range of measures were um, put in place. Each boat was given a number um, or each boat trip was given a number and they had to be filed. And, uh, and it was really an equivalent of a flight plan with an aircraft. So before each boat departed its parent ship, it was given a number, the destination and the mission was clearly articulated to the entire force. On returning to the force, uh, that boat had to do a, a specific maneuver that could be identified on radar before being cleared to close the force. They had radar and infrared beacons, as well as lights and visual signals. And the refinement of all this was done using uh, uh boarding department to verify that uh, all this worked. And this was done during a rehearsal where the Coalition teams were embarked for a short period before the war and then returned to their ships um, uh, for a period of time.
0: David mccourt Canimbla had a Seeking helicopter embarked and a very useful helicopter indeed. Can you describe the role of your helicopter in Coalition logistics? and, And indeed, can you talk a little bit more broadly about how your ship played a role as a helicopter lily pad?
5: Sure. So from the perspective that we, um, we had a seeking embarked with the, the, the full um, detachment from Nowra. Uh, and their, their primary role, I guess, was if an operational, from an operational perspective was in support of boarding operations, where they would provide uh, top cover to a boarding party if they were being inserted by a boat, or uh, on some occasions they would uh, insert boarding parties using uh, the fast roping technique which basically has it um, sees the boarding party leaping out of the helicopter and sliding down the rope onto the deck of the of the vessel to be boarded. Um, the other role, of course, as you said, Rob, is they're very um, they're very versatile and they they fulfil a great role as a, a utility helicopter, um, moving stores around and and so on. Um, interestingly enough, one of the uh, one of the roles that they did fulfil uh, was. Taking uh, once we uh, once the uh, the war it, it's the combat operations themselves had completed was they did a lot of work with the clearance divers, uh, in it, Australian clearance divers in at UMKASAR and um, and moved them around uh, in theatre as well. But going on to the broader operation of of Canimbla as a lily pad, uh, we had the potential to launch uh, and recover helicopter or three helicopters simultaneously. We had two spots down aft and one spot up forward. Now, as I indicated previously, the forward spot uh, was occupied by all the coalition ribs and their cradles, but we still had two spots down aft. Uh, the other thing we had was the um, the ability to fuel helicopters. So, in the lead up to combat operations and beyond, uh, it it was like um, it was like we were at a railway station. There were there were uh, helicopters coming and going uh, all day and all night. Um, often they would land on. And fuel, and continue on into emissions uh, over Iraq. Um, often they would land on and uh, ask if they could go and have a meal in our galley because the food was uh, was excellent. And if they were American, uh, they actually got to eat real food that was fresh and uh, freshly prepared. And uh, and so we got a reputation actually as being a great spot to um, to get lunch. And uh, and it was so much so that sometimes we'd have queues of helicopters wanting to land on. Around lunchtime. And so we had to institute a, a boxed lunch kind of regime where, with a, a hot box, could be delivered to the helicopters and their crews, and then they, and off they would go rather than uh, landing on and shutting down, which had been an earlier practice. And with respect to that lily pad uh, capability that we had, one of the key uh, missions that we were supporting was the um, airborne early warning, um, and really that was an electronic warfare mission was being undertaken by royal navy sea kings that were equipped with some pretty sophisticated uh, electronic warfare equipment and we supported those um, those aircraft over a number of nights but uh, tragically uh, during one of the uh shamals the two of those aircraft uh, had a mid-air collision and uh, and all both of the crews were were, were killed and that was uh, that affected the ship quite deeply because those um, those crews had been operating from the ship for a couple of nights, and they'd they'd been um, dining in the uh, in the cafeteria. Uh, some of the ship's company knew them, you know, as well as you can given those that, those couple of nights of exposure. And also, um, when they collided, there was quite a significant um, explosion and fireball that was witnessed by some of the sails on the upper deck. So, as I said, it was it was a tragedy, and it did affect some of the ship's company quite deeply.
2: David Stevens, as the
0: deadline approached for the start of combat operations there was quite a lot of debate wasn't there about whether those operations would begin at night or during the day can you tell us a bit about the considerations
1: yeah well if you recall i mentioned the uh, land and the air campaigns but the role of the special forces was also very important particularly the need to secure iraq's southern oil infrastructure before it could be sabotaged because if you remember back earlier in this series we heard how iraq troops had destroyed the Kuwaiti uh, oil infrastructure when they retreated. Now, according to uh, General Franks, the trigger for the Iraqi regime to initiate this sabotage would probably be the start of the air campaign, particularly those strikes directed against Saddam Hussein. So to d- reduce this risk, uh, by the eve of the war, the planners had decided that the air and ground campaigns were due to start almost simultaneously. And that was going to be early in the morning of the 21st of March. But two days before that date, so the 19th, there was a number of intelligence reports came in, uh, including the, those that mentioned that the Iraqis were already wiring up the um, the oil field, southern oil fields with explosives. Again, there were also reports coming from the Gulf, where the Maritime Interception Force had uh, intercepted a couple of Iraqi tugs that were... Um, taking UN contractors uh, back to Iraq, and the uh, interception ship grabbed those guys back from the Iraqis. But the information that came out of that interception supported the, the intelligence because it said that, the, you know, these guys who'd been on the terminals said that they'd been, um, recently there'd been a number of uh, unidentified Iraqis coming on board, all dressed uniformly in bright new overalls, and they'd been bringing their own rubber boats and um, various boxes. Now, that, they were almost certainly sabotage teams. So the combination of this intelligence meant that Franks brought forward the ground campaign by around eight hours rather than wait, because he was concerned that the uh, oil fields, etc. might go up before we, the uh, Special Forces had a chance to get in there. So he brought the, uh, the ground force and the Special Forces campaign ahead by about eight hours, which meant that it started on the evening of the 20th of March. Now, and that was about 24 hours in advance of the actual start of the air campaign. And there were some hopes, probably successful as well, um, as uh, it turned out, that this change would actually take the Iraqis by surprise because it was complete opposite of what had happened in 1991 where the air campaign had preceded the ground campaign by several weeks.
2: So, John... David's just talked about bringing forward the operation to secure the oil infrastructure. Can you describe the operation and what ANZAC's role was?
4: Absolutely. So uh, we did have intelligence that, um, I guess, uh, from the previous got four, that these were uh, 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 assets that may be targeted, and of course the uh, huge environmental impact that that would have. So it did involve initially, uh, apart from planning for possible um, naval gunfire support uh, uh, operations and the continued operations were uh, in the lead up uh, was to uh, control the areas of uh, Kaybot K- and, um, and Mabel. But uh, to be clear, these, these installations are, uh, I think, 16 and 20 odd miles um, um, uh, from the coast. So they were in our area of operations. So we were quite familiar with them. There was nothing new, new about them. It was just, uh, maintaining uh, um, a situational awareness of uh, who's uh, going in and going past. But also keep in mind that the flow of uh, traffic outside of the KA had reduced markedly. And Whilst we'd see the occasional um, uh, Iraqi at PB90, it was actually uh, quite quite rare and uh, all um, um, our interactions with them were quite courteous at that stage. So uh, maintaining um, um, the safety of those uh, installations was, was a matter of just operating we didn't actually have to um, uh, stop anyone trying to forcibly go into them um, although at times the number of fishing guards would get quite close but we maintained that through the presence of our, uh, our boarding teams uh, who were conducting uh, inspection operations.
0: Peter Jones on the night that operations commenced to secure the infrastructure there were also a number of other actions that night
2: in can you tell us a bit about them?
3: The first incident was the foiled attack by an Iraqi PB-90 patrol boat that sailed down the Korobdala waterway to attack the Maritime Interception Force. En route, it fired on a coalition aircraft, which turned out to be a C-130 gunship, which promptly sank it. Uh, Three survivors were eventually recovered by uh, the uh, Chinook, which was one of the patrol boats which was providing a cordon um, to the north of the main part of the Maritime Inception Force on the core of Dalla Waterway. Uh, she transferred uh, later uh, that morning those survivors to the Knimbla where they were treated on board um, or were suffering from severe hypothermia. The second uh, incident was two Iraqi tugs and um, a barge had been proceeding down the Korobdala waterway, they were intercepted by these patrol boats um, during the night. And um, the initial inspection of those vessels indicated a large number of Iraqis on board. Um, I ordered those vessels to be held um, to the north of um, the force and with the intention that uh, Kanimbla. would uh, put a boarding party at first light and the final activity was the dispatching of the four frigates for the shore bombardment uh, but john stavridis will be best to talk about that
2: and we'll return to uh the l4 engagement in a moment
0: but before we get to that, david stevens can you just Briefly describe what was occurring more broadly, and in particular, we also had the uh, Australian clearance diving team there. What were they up to?
1: Well, obviously, the main activity that had been happening ashore was the build-up of the huge numbers of coalition ground forces, and these had largely been pre-positioned in Kuwait. And as we've heard at sea, there are another you know there are around 150 vessels in the Gulf, which included three U.S. carrier battle groups. Elsewhere in the Red Sea, the US had positioned forces ready to launch Tomahawk strikes because they'd been uh, unable to gain approval from Turkey to do overflights of Turkey. So they'd had to move their ships around to the Red Sea. Now, once the war began, their major ground formations began their rapid advance towards Baghdad because Baghdad was really seen as a centre of gravity for Iraq because that's where the leadership was. Now, simultaneously, the Royal Marines carried out their ass- sent assault on the Al Four Peninsula with the aim of clearing that and then moving on to Basra. Now, Clearance Diving three, uh, t- sorry, Clearance Diving Team Three, arrived in theatre in the week of um, last week of February 2003, and they thereafter based themselves at an American base in Kuwait where they continued training. On 18, 18th of March, just before the war began they deployed to a staging area south of the um, Iraqi border. They brought with them their own uh, vehicles and their own boat. And so the intention was for them to drive across the border into Iraq and move on to Umm Qasr. And once there, they were going to um, start cl- clearing that port of uh, unexploded ordnance and le- allowing it to uh, be used by coalition shipping, particularly the humanitarian shipping. So really what the... Clarence Diving Team 3 was doing for a while, was sitting at the, on the, uh, the border, waiting for the order to move forward.
2: John Stavridis, as Peter Jones just
0: mentioned, ANZAC was involved in the bombardment of the L4 Peninsula, and this is the first time the RAN had engaged the enemy since the Vietnam War. Can you describe for us this
2: operation?
4: Yeah, thank you. Um, so the, the operation actually started the night before, we uh, would mention those two tugs. So uh, that evening before, uh, uh, Anzac and, and of course the uh, three Royal Navy vessels, uh, Marlborough, Chatham, and Richmond, uh, had made their way um, into the uh, KA and uh, had uh, preposition. positioned. And can I also add at this stage, um, one of those um, certainly not unusual Shamals had uh, come into the area. So visibility had become appalling. Um, down to a a couple of miles um, at best. So uh, doing that at night, um, as we previously mentioned, yet the two uh, tugs uh, had been identified and uh, put to anchor and then later um, identified carrying mines. But certainly we proceeded uh, uh, with support of, uh, I think the US patrol boat fireball, I believe it was, uh, leading the uh, entry and we pre-positioned to fire support area Juno and I think Chatham and Richmond were uh, in, Fire support area sort in preparation for those uh, uh, upcoming mission, and then uh, early that morning again uh, with the uh, Shamal, the visibility is quite poor. We were ordered uh, to commence the uh, naval gunfire support in support of um, uh, I believe 42 commander of three brigade Royal Marines and their uh, assault on Bouvian Island and the uh, peninsula, and that lasted uh, over about uh, three days. Um, We were called to do seven, seven fire support missions. And I believe we fired uh, all up our forty-two um, rounds over over that um, three-day period. And Certainly, what surprised me was uh, the limited number of rounds we had to actually fire um, uh, to achieve the mission. And indeed, the feedback we got back was just the incredible accuracy of uh, all ships conducting that naval gunfire support. Um, once we got those, our calls to fire uh, very quickly. Soon after, uh, uh, we uh, got the feedback to targets were destroyed and uh, uh, mission achieved. Um, so not many around, but incredible accuracy, which has of the uh, commanders
2: for sure.
0: David McCourt, early on in that first morning, uh, the conflict, the multinational interception force commander ordered Canimbala to send a boarding party over to inspect the uh, seized Iraqi tugs and the barge. What what did they find there?
5: Well, what they found was a was a pretty uh, well thought out and sophisticated clandestine. Uh, mine laying capability, and um, the first, I guess, the first inkling we had was um, a couple of days before when we'd had boarding parties uh, up in the up in the river, and they'd actually gone uh, and uh, made an attempt to, um, I guess, have a closer look at those tugs and the and the PB ninety that Peter mentioned previously had come down and uh, menaced our boarding party to the point where they um, they'd withdrawn. Um, so we knew that there was something going on with those tugs, but um, when the, the, they were initially uh, stopped and held in position overnight by uh, I think it was USS Chinook, and then we went over our boarding parties went over in the morning, and uh, whilst the petty officer in charge of the boarding party was interrogating the master on the on the bridge of the of the tug, uh, one of the leading seamen um, was down on the on the barge, uh, which which is alongside the tug and on top of the barge was a large uh, shipping container, like a 40-foot uh, shipping container. And the leading seamen, basically, w- with uh, a couple of the uh, other members of boarding party, went inside the, uh, the uh, container to, um, I guess, have a look at what, uh, you know, to, to continue with their inspection. In the corner of the container was a, uh, a it was empty except for a small pile of rubbish. Uh, they moved the pile of rubbish, discovered that there was a hatch Opened up the hatch and went that hatch led down into, into the internal uh, parts of the barge. And inside the barge, they discovered uh, quite a sophisticated arrangement of uh, mine laying rails and, uh, and two different types of mines. There were the manta mantra, uh, bottom uh, mines and uh, lugum uh, floating uh, mines. And uh, they were uh, laid out uh, on these tracks inside the barge. And uh, subsequently, uh, we looked at um, the other tugs that were uh, anchored nearby and discovered that on the upper decks of those tugs, uh, what appeared to be at first glance um, rows and rows of 44-gallon drums uh, turned out to also be a um, disguised mine laying capability because the, those um, those 44-gallon drums were, had actually been hollowed out and welded together and they could be folded back. And uh, when folded back, uh, they revealed uh, mine laying rails that again had mines uh, ready for laying uh, on the upper decks of those tugs, and so um, that was a pretty busy day. And uh, I guess the uh, I guess the, the importance of that was the fact that those mines were destined to be laid in the northern Arabian Gulf, and uh, the actions of the you know the coalition forces prevented that from happening because I think had they been laid in the Gulf, it would have been a you know would have delayed operations and 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 really complicated uh, operations in the NAG for quite some time, uh, the other thing that happened, I guess uh, as a consequence of those um, of those boardings was the uh, apprehension i guess of uh, around fifty odd um, Iraqi military people who, uh, who became uh, enemy prisoners of war and, uh, and we ended up um, processing those people under the, uh, under the terms of the Geneva Convention in Canimimba because we were the regional Uh, enemy prisoner of war uh, coordination ship.
2: Peter, Jones, as David's mentioned, you know, mines in a littoral area of operations
0: are a naval commander's nightmare. So you are the task group commander on the scene. What was going through your mind when you heard about the mines?
3: Yes, so it was pretty clear this was... A matter a of strategic significance to the, the uh, conduct of the maritime campaign. One of the key issues was the fact that uh, the initial inspection of the rails um, in the uh, barge indicated that there were five empty slots. So the question there was: uh, had these um, had there been five mines? Had they been deployed, or? Were they just five empty slots? Um, So there was some conflicting information. Um, The the Knimbler's XO, or second in charge, was Lieutenant Commander Mick Edwards, who, by um, happenstance, was a a clearance diver uh, by specialisation. So I asked uh, Mick to get in the boat and go up to the scene and give me his assessment of what was going on. also, uh, as time went by, the, uh, the Iraqi uh, uh, prisoners uh, came on board um, Kanimbla. Our Kuwaiti liaison officer, Major Majid Al Shamiri, uh, spoke to them, and uh, what became clear was that the mining operation was actually planned for forty-eight hours into the future, and the mining operation was actually going to be off Kuwait, um, and. Um, and it was, I was very, very confident that, in fact, there were no five mines. Um, and I relayed that to uh, Admiral Costello and the Commander of Fifth Fleet.
2: John Stavridis, speaking about
0: the command arrangements, the majority of command instructions and reporting was occurring using chat windows. Can you explain how all that worked?
4: Yeah, so um, just re- recall that uh, this is back in uh, 2003. So um, chat was still quite quite a new um, um, and novel way of, way of reporting. But certainly, um, I, you know, I still remember because I was actually on the uh, chat session at 6:04 on the uh, 21st of March. Uh, we um, were reporting our fire mission um, through a chat chat session uh, back home to Fleet um, Headquarters. Uh, a Different uh, par- uh, arrangement back headquarters and what it is now. Uh, but certainly, we were still in our full messaging, no doubt, but uh, we're just letting them know, um, uh, you know, uh, second by second updates on what we were doing. Given, of course, as you rightly said earlier, we had not been uh, or fired any weapons in anger for some 30 uh, odd years. But it was certainly a novel uh, uh, a new approach, but I'll, I'll be honest with you, a very efficient and quick way of uh, um, reporting to multiple people uh, at the same time.
0: What about from your perspective, Peter, as the Maritime Interception Force Commander, were these systems effective?
3: Yes, I thought uh, the the chat window was an excellent way for command and control if properly used. Um, So, just to explain, there would be a chat window for different sorts of operations, and within the maritime campaign, there may be, you know, there could have been 50 different ones. Um, Our one was for maritime interception operations. There was a discrete one for the naval gunfire support, as John has indicated. Um, And also what you would uh, do is you would uh, report things. So ships would report their activities in the chat window. My staff would then give orders in the chat window. Um, You could also have what was called a whisper box, which is essentially a one-on-one communication between you and a the ship and so quite often my staff would um, set up one of these one-on-one windows with the ship explaining and discussing with them a particular uh, task which was coming their way they'd provide feedback and then once all that was resolved then you'd be able to uh, put that into uh, the chat window one of the advantages of a chat window also is that you were um, recording uh, in a in a textual way uh, the conduct of operations, which is uh, incredibly useful when you are wanting to go back and check things. Um, it also meant that uh, the the Maritime interception Force was uh, very well aware of what was going on. And so I indicated those seven tasks that we were tasked to do. Not every unit necessarily had a leading role in that. Um, but um, if things changed and I, I needed A different ship to do something else, then um, they had enough situational awareness to be able to more quickly take that on. The other thing was um, during my time in command, we had 37 different ships come into the Maritime Interception Force at different times. Um, And uh, so ships joining could um, get greater situational awareness before they joined. And so, for example, those three Royal Navy frigates they were in our uh, chat window from the English Channel. Um, and so by the time they got to the Gulf, they had just immersed themselves into the, our way we did business. Um, and so I found that ships um, could uh, quickly acclimatize to, um, to operations if they uh, had studied what was going on uh, through our command and control means. The uh, downside of it um, was that uh, you had your superior headquarters looking in and seeing what you were doing, and quite often in operations you're the only one where anything's going on, and everyone else is just watching you so there is a potential for the um five thousand mile screwdriver um but um we found that was really um a uh, a a risk because we had um uh, had discussions with our superior headquarters everyone knew what the uh, the authority we had to do certain things and when we would seek authority from higher up and and of course we'd been there for quite a few months uh, I think we'd pretty much resolved all those those issues but you know it was just something to uh, to watch
0: just a quick follow-up on it Peter were you ever concerned that this new innovation for reporting was Replacing or wasn't quite the same as all of those formal signalling and reporting uh, processes that you trained with for for, for many decades.
3: Um, yes, so there there was a risk of that, but the the thing I found is in a multinational setting is that um, some of those uh, traditional means like uh, signal flags and flashing light, uh, the schools had uh, had degraded in some navies. So. Um, provided that they had good satellite communications, this was the most reliable way of doing business. But um, but it also meant, though, that people had to be quite precise with their English. Um, and, uh, and, so, uh, and, uh, and and so captains and and officers had to really make sure that people were quite precise in what they were saying.
2: David Stevens, we've talked about mines, we've talked about
0: uh, Iraqi Navy and some other threats, but there was also a threat to the maritime interception force in the form of Iraqi suicide boats, and there were two attempted vessel-borne IED operations. Can you uh, explain us what transpired
1: in in those in those two incidents? Yeah, sure. The um the suicide boats were small inflatable rubber boats, you know, a smaller version of the rib, but without the uh, the rigid hull, obviously. Um. They were stacked with um, 500 kilograms or so of explosives and around their bowels they'd uh, been fitted with the contact horns uh, from a sea mine. And so obviously the idea was to ram these boats into the side of a ship uh, to explode the um, the contents. Now, the first um, encounter came about around about the 24th of October. Sorry, sorry, the 24th of March. Uh, when four of these um, vessels were detected coming out of the shout al-Arab. Um, but they were detected by the uh, forces belonging to the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps Navy, rather than the Maritime Interception Force. One of the four was beached and captured, while the fate of the others remained a bit uncertain, particularly at the time. But what the uh, Iranians had done was to investigate, and that's where the information came from, about the um uh, came the information came to the maritime interception force and obviously the maritime interception force or the ships in the gulf realized that they were almost certainly the intended target of these boats and as the uh, then captain jones said later in the year the iranians were now on the coalition's christmas card list in any case the uh, the knowledge that these Types of boats were about simply reinforced the, no, the need for all ships to remain vigilant. Now, about a week later, one of the uh, US Navy patrol craft, uh, USS Schnook, went to investigate the report uh, of a sighting of a small boat on the banks of the Korogala waterway. Uh, as the uh, patrol craft approached, they saw a number of figure, figures uh, disappearing over the nearest dune. What Chinook's crew found when they got ashore was one of the suicide boats and a large weapons cache, and this included anti-tank weapons that were set up to fire across the uh, Abdullah waterway. Now, clearly, the setup had been uh, placed or put in place to catch one of the coalition units as they were going up or down the waterway. And again, it was just a very fortunate result uh, that they were found before the damage could be done.
2: David McCourt, speaking of the KAA, we have the, kind, the mine uh, countermeasures forces inching
0: their way along the KAA, and your landing craft and uh, maritime interception force patrol boats and the RIBS all played a role in that. Can you tell us about this part of the operation?
5: Sure. So um, so the mission that we had was to uh, secure the waterway and uh, facilitate that uh, passage of humanitarian aid up to Um and the plan for us was that as the as the uh, mine clearance forces uh, cleared our passage through the um, through the waterway uh, at, at every I guess ten mile it was forty miles of waterway so at each ten mile increment uh, a box uh, would be cleared a box in the water would be cleared and that would be cleared sufficiently that that Kniembler could uh, could anchor or indeed. Uh, patrol up and down uh, underway, if if we so desired. And so, so what we did was uh, had a combination, I guess, a leapfrog combination. We used our um, our landing craft, the uh, LCM 8s uh, as um, lily pads, if you like, for the ribs, and we leapfrogged our way up the river in ten mile increments. So the the landing craft would go ahead. Uh, the boats would, op- we, we'd, we'd still launch and recover the boats from Canimbla, but they could be supported for periods of time on the landing craft. And uh, and as a box was cleared at, at at the 10 mile mark or the 20 mile mark or the 30 mile mark, then we would move uh, Canimbla up into that box and we'd either patrol up and down uh, or if, uh, and as John pointed out earlier on, John Stavridi said this, uh, the Shamal was like a sandstorm uh, in the middle of the river. So on occasion, uh, if the visibility was so bad, the radars wouldn't work, so we'd anchor for safety um, during those shamals But in essence, we leapfrogged our way up the river as the, uh, as the uh, clearance operation took place.
2: Yeah, Peter Jones, the 2003 Iraq war was very much conducted in the full
0: glare of the media, and the Maritime Interception Force had international media embarked. How did all this work
2: out?
3: Well, fortunately for us, uh, we had been in the Gulf for a number of months. Uh, I'm talking myself and my staff. So we had um, been used to having media come on board. And during the sanction operations, international media would uh, come through the US Fifth Fleet and go out to the Maritime Interception Force to uh, cover the sanction enforcement operations. So we got experience at uh, dealing with international media got used to um, the quite uh, well-developed rules that the US Navy had. Uh, It was quite an open sort of uh, approach they had to the media. Um, And so what we uh, did was essentially use um, uh, Canimbla as the initial uh, point of entry into the Maritime Interception Force for the media. The different media teams would come on board. We talked to them about what is it they want to cover and. There was a bit of a variety about what they wanted to cover um, and what their capabilities were. Some uh, people, I feel, like the CNNs were quite well equipped with their own satellite, um, and others needed uh, a bit of assistance. But uh, once we did that, then we would uh, explain to them what we thought was going to happen, uh, and then feed them to the um, the other uh, ships in the maritime interception force, but with a view t- so that it wasn't a burden for them. But we are very um, conscious that uh, uh, media coverage was important. Uh, it was important for people back home. It was important globally for people to see what was going on. Um, and it was also important for the uh, men and women of the Maritime Interception Force that their uh, contribution and, their, uh, and what they were, were doing uh, would be told at the time and also for posterity.
0: So, this brings us up to the 28th of March, and by now the KAA has been sufficiently cleared for the first humanitarian aid ship, which was the RFA Sir Galahad, uh, to arrive in Umm Qasar, escorted by the Maritime Interception Force. So, this effectively ended the combat operations for the Maritime Interception Force. So, before we wrap up, could I ask each of you for a final comment on the Royal Australian Navy's involvement in the 2003 Iraq War, and in particular,
2: if you think there was anything. That's important for our legacy from that involvement david McCourt, let's start with you
5: I think my um, my enduring memory of that time and my overall impression was uh, of i guess the, um, the the professionalism of our sailors and soldiers because I had soldiers in my ship as well, but the professionalism of those individuals and I guess the the constant um, willingness to innovate and to come up with new ways of doing things. And I was really proud of the fact that when we left the Gulf, what we'd left was a really good impression amongst our coalition allies of the capabilities of the Royal Australian Navy. And that was certainly reflected in the signals that we received as we were departing. But I think overall um, it was that, it was that that professionalism that innovation, and the fact that I felt that we were able to stand side by side with much larger navies, but like larger in size, but not necessarily in capability, and I, I felt that we were equal uh, in the way we conducted ourselves, and in fact, in some way superior, but certainly equal, and, and stood amongst equals uh, in, in, that, in that sense. So I, it, was, um, it was terrific, actually, uh, the way the Australian Navy conducted itself in the Gulf. And uh, I think it's set the tone for uh, many years afterwards.
2: John Stavridis, how about a comment from you? Well,
4: thank you. Um, look, uh, I'd like to echo some of those um, those comments. Um, just how amazing uh, and adaptable the uh, uh, RAN crews were, but also um, uh, a couple of points on the uh, flexibility and adaptability of our, of our ships too. Uh, so ANZAC had been prepared, um, uh, for a very different mission when she uh, got there, but uh, that very quickly changed, and she was able to uh, uh, adapt to a very different mission. And in fact, Ffh so proven itself in that area with a shallow draft, um, uh, being able to operate uh, in those uh, uh, waterways. And indeed, the um, the Mark Three Comets system there I found to be excellent um, in such a congested uh, area with a target indication um, uh, radar, and certainly. Uh, the optronics uh, when we were in those um, Shamals. Indeed, I recall one incident um, on, this is now day two, morning two, um, so just on sunrise, the Shamal was still there, and we had um, five uh, vessels in the V formation closing us at speed. We had just been given a um, naval gunfire support uh, mission, so the gun was unavailable, but we had a great track wall scan uh, solution on all of the five uh, vessels in this V formation. They ended up later being uh, the Mark V Special Forces boats, but Uh, had no IFF, couldn't identify them, um, but certainly had um, Sea Sparrow uh, missile solutions on all of them. So we felt fairly uh, confident in um, uh, in the Mark III um, uh, combat system on board. The other thing um, I was quite uh, pleased with was the uh, mission planning that uh, allowed us to uh, adapt so quickly to a changing uh, um, scenario. And and the final um, comment I'd like to make is, um, and not only because he's online, but the excellent C2 and the mission command affected by our Captain Jones at the time. We were well briefed. We understood the command intent. Uh, we un- understood the intelligence uh, around us at the time. And we were just allowed to uh, get on and do it uh, and, and achieve uh, his intent. So um, given the amount of forces he had under his command, uh, you know, given that flexibility and the authority to get on and do it, certainly made the job so much easier. And from you, David Stevens? Well, it's, a,
1: it's an interesting uh, point, of course. And uh, with hindsight, we can now see that what happened um, during the Iraq War was really um, it's a, just another of all the varied roles that the RAN has undertaken during its extended time in the Middle East. And of course, 2003 was our second in the conf- conflict in the region, 12 years after the first. And since then, many more ships and thousands of more personnel have deployed with the operations themselves constantly changing and adapting uh, depending on what the latest requirement has been. So I'd have to fully agree with um, David and John there that flexibility and professionalism that has been displayed throughout this time uh, will stand as our greatest legacy.
2: Peter Jones, a final comment from you.
1: Yes, I'd like to take a
3: multinational um approach perspective, if I may, um, and, and building on um, the point from David, uh, the performance of the Maritime Interception Force really built on the, uh, on, the, on the shoulders of all those men and women who had participated in MIF operations for 12 years from multiple navies that had built up expertise, knowledge of the area, and so on. And we couldn't have performed as we did without uh, that previous experience. The second point I make is that uh, coalition navies will, will generally send their best units, and or if not the best, well-prepared and well-trained. And so a multinational force has a great benefit of a diverse array of uh, capabilities and very well-prepared. Um, the third point I make is that the Maritime Interception Force had developed uh, its own ethos and spirit of core, and um, and I believe it had uh, developed a synergistic uh, capability where it had um, a, a greater collective combat power than the uh, just adding up the individual capabilities of each ships, and I I'd, uh, use as an example the ability of the Maritime Interception Force to be able to, in those uh, in the lead-up to the conflict, to be able to do so many simultaneous boardings because of the level of integration that it had been able to achieve. Um, and finally, just looking from the Iraqi perspective, uh, had great uh, sympathy for the Iraqi Navy uh, in terms of the task that they had against a well-integrated force, one that was operating inside their territorial waters, who probably had more situational awareness of the approach to the Korobala Waterway than the Iraqi Navy. So, and also they, from what we could glean, um, a very centralized um, command structure with very little delegation. Um, I think uh, they really had a very difficult task uh, confronting the Maritime Interception Force and the other coalition naval units.
2: Well, at this point, we'll leave the story of the
0: RAN and the Middle East. Now, the RAN, of course, has continued to operate in the Middle East in different missions and roles, and these more recent exploits will be covered in another episode. But for now, my thanks to Vice Admiral Peter Jones, Captain David McCourt, Captain John Stavridis, and Dr David Stevens for phoning in for this podcast from all around the world, indeed. Uh, In this time of COVID-19. This podcast is produced by the Naval Studies Group at the University of New South Wales. Its production is supported by the Royal Australian Navy Sea Power Centre, the Australian Naval Institute, the Naval Historical Society of Australia and the
2: Submarine Institute of Australia. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate it on your podcast app so others can enjoy it too. Goodbye for now.